Calls will be recorded and may be monitored. You may start the conversation now. Hey, hey. I was telling Destry, I, I said, when uh, it comes to wrongful convictions, I was like, uh, uh, Laura's pretty passionate. I said, and, uh, she, she, ain't, she ain't scared. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 9, The Trial, Part 2. I am your host, Laura Ceremi. Please use caution, as today's episode does include a racial slur. So my guess, my dad, he's going to get to come home, or it won't be life in prison. And when they... Um, when they told us the verdict I screamed and I cried and they told me I had to get out the courtroom and when I got out the courtroom I was um and a security officer I won't ever forget this you know he was like you basically you need to be quiet or you end up in jail like your father and I'm a a little girl and you're telling me I just was told that my father had life in prison without parole because I needed to be focused because I was in a whole nother world. And I was watching what was happening to other people. When I went through the transcript the other day, it's like, I don't know, I think I had said it before, it's like ripping off a, a scab on a, a, a wound that won't heal. They don't even need a reason. They, and they can make up a reason later. Just like the lady that shot the guy, went into his apartment and said it was the wrong apartment. He was in his underwear eating ice cream. How how is that even possible? This is we are we, we live under a different set of rules. Literally, and that's why. And you know when people say you know well that's not patriotic. Really, and the, the reality of it is that Black Americans we really do got a different uh, America. One day he had come to see me at the county jail and I think we were in the medical section of the jail. That was the place where they gave like privacy for attorneys and their clients. And we were talking you know, just in the midst of the conversation. You know, he said he was the nigger's attorney. That's how they referred to him. And I just kind of, just kind of shocked me, you know, that you know, we just using this type of language in this professional setting. I would like to start by talking about bail. Bail is where you can be released if you have enough money. This is a huge issue as most of the time bail is set based on the fact that they think the defendant might not show up for their trial. So the reason you have to pay money is because if you pay money, a lot of times that money is actually returned to you if you show up for the trial. So if you have resources or wealth, then you can get yourself out. One of the problems is this causes unnecessary incarceration. So if you don't have any money and you can't post bond or get out on bail, then you're stuck sitting in jail until your trial, which for 
big cases is often years down the road. This destroys your life. You lose your job. You lose your money. You lose your contact with family. This is a huge problem, and it's based strictly on how much money you had to start with because extensive studies have showed that the flight risk for people that don't show up for the trial is incredibly low. Most people definitely show up. And even the richest people who have the money and resources and offshore accounts and own islands in places that are huge flight risks, because they have extensive resources, they still get out on bail. So the entire premise of we're going to make you pay this so you show up for your court date is actually nonsense. So the first thing this does is it locks people up for no reason. So now we've got a system that is using our tax dollars to pay for people to be locked up when they haven't been convicted of anything. These people are still innocent until proven guilty, and now they're in jail. One of the big problems is if you don't have the money to make bail and you can't get out and you try to hire a lawyer, now you're going to lose your job, which means, guess what? You can't pay your lawyer. And that's what happened to Destry McKinney. When this first happened, he hired an attorney. He did not have an appointed attorney initially. He hired an attorney. And he is the attorney that Destry and Lisa have mentioned in previous episodes, the one that this is a white man in Alabama, and he refers to himself with a racial slur, being the the inwards attorney down here. I will defer to what Destry and Lisa said about that. I can't even comment without getting really angry. So the problem when you're can't get bail is now you don't have a job and you can't make money. So you can't pay this attorney. The other thing is when you don't have, when you can't get out on bail, you don't have attorney access. And so they can't call you If you call them, then you may or may not get a hold of them because attorneys are busy and have appointments. So there's very limited access to your attorney. And so the lack of coordination between the defendant and the attorney is a huge disadvantage before trial. There's minimal pretrial prep. There's all kinds of things that they they can't get done because they're in jail and there's limited access and attorneys are often have difficulty contacting their clients or visiting their clients and there's minimal prep beforehand. So that's a huge disadvantage. There's also a well-documented juror bias. If you're not out on bail, you are much more likely to be convicted. And it's almost never that the jurors don't know your bail status. So people that are out on bail are more likely to be acquitted and people that don't get bail are more likely to be found guilty. So when you are arrested and then are unable to get out, you already have several strikes against you. This happened to Destry McKinney. So Destry was unable to make bond and because of this, he could not work. So his attorney withdrew because he ran out of money. So then he was appointed a couple of court appointed attorneys And the short version of what went wrong with these guys is there was literally no communication. They didn't talk to Destry. He couldn't get a hold of them. He was left in the dark. And so he started writing the judge letters saying things like, 
respectfully. I've not heard from my attorneys. I don't know what's happening. I would like a status update. I can't get a hold of them. They don't contact me. What can we do? And he went to a docket call, status update, some kind of hearing in front of the judge with these guys, which is the first time he'd seen them basically since they had become his attorneys. And they told him that he was an idiot for contacting the judge. And so they had this huge falling out and they walked in and he said, judge, I can't work with these guys. They just called me an idiot. And they said, we want to withdraw. We don't want to work with him. So his first attorney, I'm going to go ahead and use the word racist. Any old Southern white man in Alabama who says, you know, they call me the N-words attorney down here, I have a huge issue with. And then he quit because he ran out of money. Then the next guys aren't communicating with him, and so they have a falling out. So then he gets another set of attorneys, and those are the attorneys that he actually went to trial with. And there were so many problems I can't even, we'll, we'll delve into some of the attorney drama later, but these two attorneys that were appointed to his case didn't communicate well with each other and they didn't communicate well with the court and there were plenty of things that went at cross purposes and as I'm reading through this, I can just see the whole thing spiraling down the drain. So here we are. We're going to get back into some of those details later because, boy, a lot happened. But let's get back to the trial. And so the trial is beginning, and we are in jury selection. And I spoke about the three jurors in our last episode, and I want to go back to Ms. T. So Ms. T was someone who knew Destry. She knew Stevelyn. She knew Stevelyn's sister, and she was in the jury poll. And this is a conversation I want to read directly from the transcript because I want to quote this exactly. And this is one of these situations where it's rather unbelievable. So let's see here. So they asked Ms. T, remember not her real name, to come up. Ms. T, you answered up earlier that you knew both sides and you didn't want to serve on the case, but could you render a decision based on the law and the evidence? One of the attorneys says, judge, she said she had heard about it too. The judge, all right, can you put aside any knowledge that you have heard about this case before coming here today and render a decision based on the evidence you hear in this courtroom and my charge as to the law and nothing else? Ms. T, I just really couldn't say. The judge, ma'am, Ms. T, I really couldn't say because, like I said, I know both of them. And I know the girl that got killed. Her sister and I are real close. We're friends. The judge, you can't give me a yes or no. Ms. T, no, sir. The judge, any questions of her? The attorney, I wanted to ask Ms. T, the article that you read, was it in Saturday's newspaper? Ms. T, "Uh uh-huh. The attorney, what specifically did you recall about what she read? Now, before I read this, Mind you, this is in front of the entire jury pool. So everyone in the jury can hear this. Ms. T says, well, I read that when he, I read the part where after she got shot, he drove her around before he took her to the hospital and left her. 
And then the attorney says, was there anything else in that article you recall that comes to mind? And Ms. T says that he said he's not guilty. And they said, and you read that in the article, Uh uh-huh. They go on and they basically say, can you put aside any of this knowledge of the case? Can't, you know, render a decision based on what evidence you hear in this courtroom and not the other things you know. And she finally, they basically bullied her and she finally says yes. So after she says, I don't know, I don't think so. No, I can't give you a yes, no answer. And then his attorneys challenge this juror and say, I mean, (laughs) listen to what she's saying. Um, you know, she shouldn't be in the jury pool. And the judge says, no, no, she's fine. She said she can be fair and impartial and she stays in the jury pool. I am horrified that there was an article in the paper that said that Destry McKinney drove her around before he took her to the hospital. There are multiple witnesses. There are 911 phone calls. There are transcripts. There are witnesses at the hospital. Even Stevelyn's mother said that from the time she left her house, so the time Stevelyn left her mother's house to go pick up the bed, and the time that Destry McKinney called her to tell her what happened, he called her mother. So he calls her mother after he takes her to the hospital while he's on his way with the car that's pouring fuel to go to the gas station. He calls her mother. And she said that the time lapse was 30 to 40 minutes. It takes, according to Google Maps, 17 minutes to get from where he was and the incident happened to the hospital. And all the witnesses said that he was driving 100 miles an hour to get to the hospital. So if he's stalling, if he's driving her around before he gets there, why is he going 100 miles an hour? It's absolute fabrication. So I want to know, one, did this article actually exist? Two, if so, who fed them this information and told them this? And three, how dare they discuss something like that in front of the entire jury? Because if I'm on the jury and you already assume they're guilty if they've been arrested and they're about to go to court and it's been years and they haven't made bail and you're seeing somebody who may or may not be in, you know, like handcuffs in an orange jumpsuit and well, hopefully you've been, have been in a, like a regular clothes for his trial, I would hope. But a lot of times they see them arrive and then change clothes and, you know, there's all this this stuff that goes on to basically set them up to lose. And now I'm in the jury pool and I hear, oh, wow, he drove her around. What a scumbag. You know, this this guy, you know, we can't lock him up fast enough. I mean, like, that's the kind of thing that is happening in this case. Now, again, she did not end up on the final jury. Thank goodness. But just the fact that they didn't approve the challenge and left her in the jury pool, I find reprehensible. The jury was selected the first day the trial started, and the trial actually began on day one. That is fairly expeditious. A lot of times, voir dire and the process takes multiple days. So to get going that quickly is possibly not a good sign. But the jury was selected, and if you were on that jury, or you know anyone who was on that jury, or you've heard of anyone who was on that jury, We would love to hear from them. We would be happy to talk to them in private or on the podcast or any way they'd like. So if you know anyone that was on that jury, absolutely have them reach out to us. So for today's episode, I'd like to read the opening statements, which were given on the very first day. So the jury 
all the selected jurors have met in the morning. We've gone through the voir dire process. They've selected the jury. And now the trial is actually officially beginning. And because this is a one-woman show, and I do all of the research, information, interviewing, recording, editing, and I don't have any voice actors, I'm going to do just a little bit of voice acting for, we'll see how ridiculous this is, um, for the opening statement. Now, my understanding is kind of everyone in this courtroom, probably except for Destry, has a deep southern drawl. And I am from Alabama, and I grew up in Alabama, and boy, I can sound like I'm from Alabama. Um, so I'm going to add a little little bit of that uh, as I do, as I read through the opening statements. So we're going to start. It says, uh, let's see, the judge says the state may proceed with their opening. So uh, Steve Giddens is the prosecutor in this case. He was also the prosecutor that was prosecuting Stefflin for her attempted murder charge. Um, but I'm going to read through his opening statement. Thank you, Your Honor. Good afternoon. I am Steve Giddens. As was said this morning, I'm the district attorney, and I'll be trying this case along with Barry Matson here. Now, you see Jimmy Kilgore, who was chief investigator at that time with the Sheriff's Department, and Kathy Jones, who works for my office. I want to thank you for your service, too. And we talked about it and kind of joked about it this morning. You got a subpoena. But without you, we cannot get to this point. The case would just absolutely stop. And we appreciate you being here. And I know it's inconvenient and uncomfortable, but without you right here, this case would never be resolved. Now, this is the opening statement portion of the trial. As the judge told you, it's kind of a preview. It's a time I can talk to you and tell you what I believe the law in this case to be and what I believe the facts and what I think we can prove because we do have the burden of proof. And I will talk to you about that in a minute. Now, this case comes to you by way of indictment. The indictment is not evidence in the case. It is merely the vehicle by which we get to circuit court. It advises the defendant of what he's charged with. Now, in this case, the indictment reads, I know you've heard it, but I'm going to read it to you again because I want to define some of these terms in this indictment. State of Alabama, Talladega County, Circuit Court, May term 2001. The grand jury of said county charged that before the finding of this indictment and on or about the 6th day of February 2000 in the county of Talladega, Alabama, District Court McKinney, whose true name is to the grand jury unknown otherwise than stated, did intentionally cause the death of another person to wit, Stevlin Seals, by or through the use of a deadly weapon to wit by shooting her with, to wit, a pistol, while the said Stevlin Seals was inside a vehicle in violation of Section 13A540A17 of the Code of Alabama against the peace and dignity of the state of Alabama. And it's signed by me, Steve Giddens, District Attorney, 29th Judicial Circuit of Alabama. All of that said, what does that tell you? He's charged with capital murder. And capital murder in this particular case is defined in 13A540A17. And that says a capital offense is enumerated accountability for behavior of another. I'm just going to take a big pause right here. I read through the entire opening statement and it was so technical, tedious, and boring that I couldn't possibly make the whole thing part of this podcast. I'm going to do a little montage of that opening statement for you, and I will make it as short as possible. But before I even got halfway through, I was over it. It doesn't surprise me that there were jurors sleeping in the jury box. It wasn't even as interesting as a law lecture. It was just reciting laws, numbers, definitions. It was certainly nothing like you would see on TV and 
as invested as I am in this case and how important these details are, I couldn't even bear to make you listen to it. So enjoy my little montage, um, which will hopefully make it a little more interesting. And we will get back to the opening statement for the defense in our next episode. And then I just kind of think things are going wrong. I look over in the jury box and the juror, one juror is asleep. And in my mind, and you know, it's like, how is he gonna get a fair trial if one of the jurors is actually asleep in the jury box? Section 17, murder committed by or through the use of a deadly weapon while the victim is in a vehicle. Now murder. Murder is set out in 13A62. Now you heard intent. What is intent? Intent is subjective. It's defined, 13A, and it didn't take long for the train to show up. The train. I As I was reading through this... I kept hearing, I kept seeing this part about the train. Apparently this courthouse is literally next to a train track and the train goes by all the time. And so every time the train goes by, they basically have to pause for a second because you can't hear anything because the train's going by. I mean, really? So, okay. So that was the whole thing with the train. All right. (laughs) A person acts intentionally with respect to a result of to conduct described by a statute defining an offense when its purpose is to cause that result or engage in that conduct. I submit to you taking a pistol, pointing it at someone, and pulling the trigger is intent. Knowingly, a person acts knowingly with respect to conduct or to a circumstance described by a statute defining an offense when he is aware that his conduct is of that nature of that circumstance exists. The term includes but is not limited to a pistol, rifle, shotgun, switchblade, knife, gravity knife, stiletto, sword, dagger, or any billy, blackjack, bludgeon, or metal object. A vehicle is any propelled vehicle as defined in subdivision 9 of section 13A81. The term includes any propelled device by which... Okay, are you bored yet? Like, I'm I'm kind of, like, already over it. <laughs> like, the, I mean, really? <laughs> Well, today was definitely an odd, if not bumpy ride. Thanks for coming along. This is an ongoing story. If you have anything you would like to add or information, or if you served on the jury, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out at circpod at gmail.com. That's C-I-R-C-P-O-D at gmail.com. As always, fasten your seatbelts. Don't forget the kids in the back seat. Everyone stay safe out there. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 